and welcome to the Clever Tax Podcast, Creating Useful People. I'm Jodie Cook and today I'm joined by Andy Street, CBE. Andy was elected as the first mayor of the West Midlands in May 2017. Prior to that, he was the managing director of British retail giant John Lewis, where during his tenure at the top, he oversaw a 50% increase in gross sales to over 4.4 billion, a doubling of the number of stores and the growth of the company's online business. Alongside this, Andy held a host of high-profile economic development roles, including the chair of the Greater Birmingham and Solihull Local Enterprise Partnership, and he was awarded a CBE in 2015 for services to the national economy. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jodie. Good to be here. I'm so aware that the bio I just read out is absolutely incredible, but also that it's only the very tip of the iceberg, and there's so much more that we could mention. But what I'm really keen to find out is the early influences that led to all of this. So can you take us back, right back to the start, and tell me how you would describe your early childhood? Early childhood? I would actually describe it as really very conventional, actually. That's probably an unexciting word. But my parents were both Brummies, and my grandparents on all sides, and we lived in a very normal house in Northfield, and I went to very early on the preschool thing, just along the road, and then my first school was just the local school in Northfield. And I just remember it all being very sort of loving, really. Yeah, family was quite close. My grandparents, we saw a lot of them. I had a brother and a sister. They were both younger than me. But I don't look back and think there was anything at all that was particularly unusual in those first years. I suppose I would have said I had a very comfortable but secure upbringing right in those early years. What did your parents do for a living when you were growing up? They were both scientists in their qualifications. So my dad did a qualification in metallurgy and he actually worked for a company called Alcan Aluminium. They had a big factory at Kitts Green in Birmingham and he did various jobs there, but on the technical side and he sold foil for a fair amount of time as well. And my mum, she was a pharmacist. And in most of my growing up years, when I was at home, she actually worked in Birmingham's hospitals. So as it was then called East Birmingham Hospital, dispensing drugs on the uh, wards. So that was all quite normal. Then she moved to retail pharmacy after that. When you were younger, did you talk much to them about their jobs at the time? Only in a sort of way in which any kid would be interested in what their parents were doing. But it wasn't a family like where the job was in the daily life, if that makes sense. I I guess if your mum and dad had been running a business of their own, corner shop or whatever, it would have been all pervasive. But it wasn't like that. There was quite separation between their work life and their home life. Okay. Yeah. So if I had asked 10-year-old Andy, what is work? What does a job look like? What does the world of work actually look like? How would he have described it? So 10-year-old Andy, that was 1973, and he would probably have talked about, oh, I suppose the most thing I was most conscious of at that age would have been the works at Longbridge, actually. So it was, that's when so many people in Northfield, then we'd moved to Solihull by then, but, you know, still very conscious that the biggest employer in the city at the time was Longbridge. Mm-hmm. Or it might actually have been my granddad on one side. He worked for, well, he actually was the owner of a small carpentry business in Birmingham. And my other granddad, he was foreman at a metal printer in Aldridge. So they would all have been quite manufacturing manual type things that mm-hmm. I thought of, as so many young Brummies did at the time. Do you remember when you started to think about 
your future role in that kind of market and what you might want to be when you when you left school, say? Well, really, the first time you come really up against it was 16. I was lucky enough to go to King Edward School, and so the assumption was always you would do sixth form. So the real question was, what subjects were you going to do at sixth form? I was quite indecisive about it. So the reason I said earlier on, both of my parents had done science subjects, and I wasn't particularly inspired by chemistry. I wasn't particularly good at physics. So I remember that summer deciding that I would do different things to where my family might have assumed I would have done. And so I chose to do art subjects for A-levels, history, geography and economics. And of course, the economics piece of it was the clue to the unlocking. Because I have to say, when I was 16, I wasn't a very gifted student at all. I was quite lazy. I was more interested in friends. We used to call it at the time what we did in playtime rather than work time. But it was going into the sixth form that really changed me. And I remember that those decisions about what I was going to do, because that was saying, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be the type of thing my parents and other family members have done. I'm going to go and do something a bit different. So why economics? By the time I was 16, I was already becoming interested in what was going on in society around us, the sort of social things in society. And I thought that was, at the time, of course, there's lots of new courses now, it was probably the clo- the best introduction to that type of thing. And also, there's a, there's a real thing here about how teachers influence your early life, which I think we should get to. I remember, and perhaps others will recall, that during Tony Blair's time as Prime Minister, there was adverts on the telly for teaching profession and it was about how an individual teacher could change your life and that was my story so as I said I wasn't particularly motivated but then I went to do economics and my teacher guy by the name of Jack Cook was the first and only economics teacher at King Edwards at the time and I just thought he was an inspiring man he wasn't much older than me looking back on it but he was the teacher I was the pupil and he was just so he just did things a different way in the sense that he almost just like discussed current issues with you through the teaching. And that inspired me, actually. So I can honestly say brilliant teaching did change my life. And so it was Jack Cook who inspired you to continue economics into university then? Yeah, it was. So, yeah, the whole story then was... It's sort of a theme here, isn't there? I didn't really... Ex- so I was lucky enough to go to Oxford. I didn't really expect to. The story was I was going to go to Exeter. Some of my best friends were going to go to Exeter. All Science Hill delivered. When my A-level results came, they were quite good. I think it was probably Jack rang me up and said, Andy, you don't need necessarily to finish now. You could, as it then was, do an exam for going to Oxford. And so I did. And I went and did PPE. And I know very well it was his teaching of economics that gave me that opportunity to go. Going from being maybe being a bit lazy at school and not being super bothered yeah. about the actual academic side, if you look at that journey, that's a very academic. Yeah, it was. Academic and this journey. is the point. There was almost like a switch clicked in me. And I also get the point looking back that people develop at different times. And mm-hmm. different, I'm sure parents listen to this will absolutely get this. Some youngsters are just full of that academic potential really early on. And let's be clear, I was lucky enough to go to King Edward, so it wasn't as I did that but I probably wasn't when I was age 13, 14, someone they thought might go off to Oxford. So you do learn that different kids mature at different ages and there can be different stimuli for that. What age was that switch? For me, it was sort of 16 when I went into that sixth form and started thinking about school in a different way. So right when everyone else is in the midst of being moody teenagers, that's when you were thinking, no, I've got a plan. 
I went, it wasn't a plan. It was just something that interested me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> to say it was planful. No, my life has never been that planful. That's one of the things, really. This sort of just <laughs> happened. As I said, I was going to do one thing at age 18 when I finished my A-levels. And then now I thought, hang on a minute, let's change that. When did you start to have an idea, apart from about doing economics and studying economics and learning yep. about it, when did you start to have an idea of what kind of career that could turn into? Ah, now that's another whole story. <laughs> and again, it's to this point of things aren't that planful. So I think perhaps the other thing I should say about this is the other thing that was happening to me in that sixth form period was that I was becoming, I hope this is a fair description and I'm not going to sound a bit indulgent, is I was becoming much more sort of socially aware of what was going on around us. King Edwards was a very good school for us in that time. They taught us great education, allowed people to be brilliant at sport, drama, whatever they wanted to do, but they also were very, very clear about the city in which you were growing up and the social issues around you and the fact that there were a lot who were a hell of a lot less lucky than those of us in that school. And looking back on it, that was an incredibly important thing for me that happened then, which I think has actually shaped all of my life and I got involved in a charity at that time, Birmingham Charity. It seems so ironic to use this term now. It was called Birmingham Young Volunteers Adventure Camps. And a simple idea. It ran holiday projects for kids who wouldn't get the chance to go away at all. And I remember those first holidays going, running these schemes for kids to go camping in Wales. And they'd never been out of the city. They'd never seen the sea. And that might sound incredible now, but it was genuinely true there. In 1980 was the first time I did that. So I got really into this. Became It's a project I was involved with for 22 years. Led holiday schemes for kids from Birmingham for all of those 22 years. Met some great personal friends through it. Had some incredibly formative experiences. Because age just 18, I was suddenly responsible for a group of 60 people, 40 young, 40 as we call them children, probably not an appropriate word, and 20 volunteer helpers. So I was suddenly, aged 18, responsible for all that. And it was bloody formative, I can tell you. So the key point about all this is that when I left university, having gone to Oxford and done economics, the career I wanted and I applied for was to come back to Birmingham City Council to be a social worker. And I'd sort of got into, done voluntary work with the social services department through that. And that was my chosen career. Nothing to do with economics. But... Back to this, it's not planful. In that summer of 1985, the city council said to me, no, sorry, Andy, you haven't got the sort of experience of life to do that. (laughs) And I thought, outrageous. How can that be? But looking back on it, they were right and I was wrong. So that's why I had to think about a different career. So it really has come full circle then. Yeah, that's the sort of strange thing. Yeah. I wanted to come back to Birmingham in 85, couldn't, went to do a different career and then Obviously, 2011, the story marches on. I end up coming back for the Local Enterprise Partnership. And so I also read that you were, I guess, quite famously turned down for the Marks and Spencer training oh, scheme. Oh, yeah, that's right. In the same year, was it that? It was all the same time, yeah. So anyway, so the story goes, the city council turned me down for social service. So I thought, right, come on, let's reflect on what you're being told here. And what I was being told was that I hadn't got the experience to do that. And that was fair enough looking back because I thought, OK, where am I going to get experience of junior leadership management roles, because that's what I think I want to do. Which sector would I do that? And I thought, actually, the retail sector will do that. At the time, they had really well-developed sort of graduate training programmes. So M&S was the Bright Spark company, so I applied for them, didn't get it. They turned me down. I'm quite convinced that when I went to the interview, we had to have dinner. Uh, I'm quite convinced I used the wrong cutlery or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so I went to John Lewis instead. And the reason I went to John Lewis, again, 
again, it teaches me something about my young self here, is that I didn't know them very well. They weren't the famous company that they are now. It was that the people I met on the interview programmes were really interesting people. And I remember thinking to myself, they're a bit unusual, a bit irreverent, you know, quirky. Told us a lot about what they did outside work. It wasn't like the sort of corporate straitjacket that in 1985 everyone wanted to be in that. And this company was different. And I thought to myself, if this company can accommodate these rather quirky people who've come to do this presentation, then I reckon I might thrive there. So that's why I ended up going there. And so the journey through John Lewis is is really interesting as well because it went from the training scheme to being a managing director of a store and then another store and then the supply chain chain, director and then HR director and then HR director and then the managing director so if you look back on that journey it all seems to make sense it all seems to be a very a very sensible career ladder within the same the same organization did it did it feel like that so that's interesting because of course the first thing that should be said is it's very unusual that someone can move literally from training my first christmas i remember my first christmas very well as christmas 85 and i was on the shop floor at johnless in brent cross in north london and there'd be friends of mine from university who'd gone off to glamorous careers in banks and they'd sort of come along and say andy what are you doing what's happened you were supposed to be you know one of these bright young things from Oxford. And I'd say, no, I want to do this. I want to really learn about this. I want to learn about how Jonas is a different business owned by its employees, all of that. But it was interesting how people reacted to my choices in 85. It wasn't what they expected. But it then looks 30 years on as though it was all very planned. But just as you say, I'm, I'm not convinced it was. I think it was far more... In the end, it might have ended up that way, but there was nothing predetermined about it. I think I was just, perhaps, I was just very lucky in the sense that I worked for some brilliant people who inspired me. So back to this story, what makes you what you are. In my early years in John Lewis, maybe there was a very clever guiding hand in our HR department, but they put me with some people who I thought were exceptional retailers, business people who could make a lot of money out of selling things and there's an art to that and actually were brilliant leaders of people knew how to bring a team together get it to do exceptional things and I was extremely lucky to be with them I think if I want to give myself credit for one thing and I always give this advice to other people as well I knew how to learn from them as well young people want to prove what they can do I always say to young people what they need to do is seize the opportunities of learning from brilliant people around them. And it is a skill to learn well from those brilliant people. But the journalist's approach to this was really very simple. You would go and be the assistant right-hand man or woman to one of their then great leaders. And that was the way we learned and it worked. So you learned how to learn from other people. Did you also learn what to discard? Did you learn when not to copy yeah, you, or yeah. imitate well that's interesting because i i always said you learn lots lots of it is good some of it is bad and you your mission is to because you can't copy anybody else can you that would be ridiculous but you assemble what you want to take with you and some other things you think oh no i wouldn't have done it that way this is this might sound very detailed but 
I was sent to Nottingham. Loved living in Nottingham at the end of the 80s. Incredibly dynamic place. Great place to be young. You know, great place to enjoy yourself. But the guy who ran our business there was an outstanding man. He's unfortunately dead now, so I can say this with no recriminations. But he was brilliant. But he also had some really big, an obvious flaw, because he did this sort of, anything not in my domain isn't good enough. So he taught me so much. I privilege, absolute privilege to work with him. But I did leave Nottingham thinking, I've also learned something else about what not to do. And it was that, I think what we were really being tested on as youngsters is whether we could do that assimilation. And so the framework you had for assessing and and knowing who to learn from, who to not learn from and what to take forward, where did the the start of even knowing how to do that come from? I haven't got a clue, (laughs) Joe. It was completely random. But uh, we're sitting purely by chance in one of our offices in Transport for the West Midlands here and the word on the board staring at me as we have this conversation, which I haven't put there, is leadership. Yeah. And I did know right back to finishing school, early days at university, that that was the real holy grail. If you could learn how to do that, it was something very special. So I think subconsciously, yeah, you're assessing business people, people you meet outside business as well, actually, but other businesses, that always goes on. But always at the back of my mind is it's this thing about great leadership that, distinguishes really excellent people so I was probably even then sort of thinking about it and it's not insignificant those holidays I ran for those youngsters that was a leadership role at a very young age and when I look back now that I was able aged 18 my colleague who ran it with me by the way who was from Coventry brilliant man as well he was about 10 years older than me he'd become a vicar he taught me a lot so it wasn't on my own aged 18 and then latterly with a friend of mine who still a very very close friend of mine from Selly Park an experienced social worker from Birmingham so I wasn't on my own but we were very conscious that what we were doing at that young age was putting a sort of leadership position together in a completely different environment to the one I find myself in now but I do realize it taught me a great deal Aside from the people who you were directly working with, do you remember seeing leaders around? Do you remember seeing leaders who you thought, yeah, that's the kind of role I'd like or that's the kind of person I'd like to be like? The answer to that is definitely yes, but I find it difficult to be imaginative in answering it because by then I was getting interested in politics. So at university, on this whole leadership bit, it's probably worth saying this little bit as well, at university I stood to be chair of the Conservative Association at university. So I was, a, I was very interested in politics in that early 80s period. So, of course, you were looking at leaders on the TV. Was, I was a great fan then and always have been an enormous fan of Michael Heseltine as my sort of a role model in the Conservative Party. And so, yeah, I did sort of observe how he went about things as a very unconventional Conservative leader. So, yeah, I was aware of that. But that whole thing about standing for that role in Oxford University as leader of the Conservatives at that time and you'll laugh at this the University Conservatives at Oxford was the biggest student political organisation in Europe and about 1500 members hotly contested election and they however I say this is going to sound really odd most of the people who led it had had a very different background to me they tended to be from often more famous schools in the south of England different social backgrounds And I was a slight outsider, if I'm honest, with my background was very different. But I 
brought around myself there at that university in what was a very hotly contested election for that role. I mean, looking back on it, it was bizarre, but I did it. Quite a lot of like-minded people who were from not dissimilar social backgrounds and quite modest, unassuming people. So I learnt in that, that piece about bringing a team together as well. So looking back in my early days, I was doing all this with kids' holidays in parts of Wales under canvassing just as brutal and basic as it could be. And then this piece about the university political association. And I think both of it was developing this underlying interest in what leadership roles are about. That's probably also very similar to the mayoral campaign. Well, that's strange, isn't it? But they were both, to the purpose of it, they were both formative things. They're both things I suspect, there was nothing planful about it. I was just interested for very different reasons and sought them out. To the mayoral campaign, yeah, I suppose this is true. I had to put the team together, I had to get ourselves organised, structured, do all that. It was, I mean, obviously, it was different because there was a lot more formality to it, if I think of all the hostings and all of that. But the underlying point wasn't different, that you'd got to get the people around you, you've got to get them to perform brilliantly, and you've got to be someone who they want to support fundamentally, want to believe in, you might almost say. Funny that it says leadership on the board behind us because I've also got it written down here and because whenever we've talked in the past, it always strikes me about how you always come across as very humble, even like because of what you, you've achieved and you always talk about the strength of the team before you'll talk about the strength of the leader. Yeah. And so is that something else that you have picked up from yeah. witnessing other leaders doing? I believe this very strongly, that the best leaders are the ones who enable the total team to be able to perform. And I am crystal clear that the best example of that in my life was the period I was leading John Lewis. I had a board, balanced men and women, not balanced ethnic, ethnically, that was always beyond us actually. But I had lots of people in that board who were brilliant in their own right. They knew far more than me about IT, about distribution, about buying, about all the disciplines. And my job was A, to select those people, that's the most important thing you ever do, and B, to enable them to be brilliant. And that might sound cliche, but that takes action, actually. It's not something that just happens. So you have to uh, spend time working through what people need, want, what they're going to do. But that's, I think, what the best leadership is about, bringing that team together. And, you know, I'm sure if you had a football manager in here, discussing the same thing that's what they would inevitably say it's the classic example they can't score the goal but they don't half have to empower their uh, their team to be in the best form so i i think that's a really important part of it and do you know one of the odd things doing this job as mayor it's sort of strange for me in one sense because suddenly it does need to be about you to a greater extent and i don't find that always particularly natural way of mm -hmm. doing things actually because I've been much more used to this we notion. Now, there's still a critical thing about we in it, let's be clear. So the we still has to be the total leadership of the combined authorities of all the other council leaders. Of course, it has to be the executive team. I can't do anything on my own. Of course, it has to be my relatively small team in the mayoral office. But there is still ultimately a, his individual name is on the ballot paper, which is totally different to when the John Lewis name, not mm -hmm. Andy Street's name, is above the shop door. I'm glad you said ballot paper and football because I wanted to talk to you about competitiveness because I've seen you win elections and also run marathons. And so would you describe yourself 
as competitive. And if so, do you remember when that started? Yes, I would describe myself as competitive. Maybe not obsessively, but yeah, I would. I mean, frankly, you can't not be and do the election piece. And also, if I think of my business career, I wanted my business to be the best. And when we got the results, sales results for the week or profit for the year, I really felt that, felt it absolutely passionately. I just had some sort of responsibility ownership for that. And I wanted it to be better than our competitors. Now, of course, interestingly, in the John Lewis model, the reason why you want that is because all of your partners share in the success of it. So there was a sort of altruism to it. But yeah, the notion of competitiveness, absolutely, I am driven by that. And when did that come about? It was, again, it's all this same sort of formative time for me, which was in that 17, 18 period. I wasn't over competitive before. I did a little bit of competitive sport, but not much. I wasn't obsessed with it as some teenagers are. But it really came out in that final period at school and moving to university. And then you'd have to say that if you're going to stand for a public election in university, stood for the student union as well as well as the conservatives, they lost that. But, you know, you've got to be really prepared to put your neck on the block. So, yeah, the answer is that it was came around that time. And, do you know, I do not know what the catalyst was for it. It wasn't that I had a... This is why I gave you all that stuff earlier on about a very normal child. It wasn't as though I had an adverse experience. It wasn't as though something happened to a close family member or a or a friend to drive this. I would say just one thing. I hope my parents would accept this. They were brilliantly supportive and loving, still are. I'm lucky they're both still alive. They came along to the count for my election. But they were always very moderate in how they praised or acknowledged anything I did. And in a sense, that always left me hungry. And I do remember thinking quite a lot as a 17-year-old, roughly, I'll bloody well show you whether that be them or anybody else. Because, yeah, I think it was, I've never asked them, but I think it was very, very clever parenting on their part. But it definitely left me hungry rather than complacent. And any sort of notion of being spoilt or any of those words you hear so often, that was so far away from how they did things. It definitely left me with that feeling of wanting to do more. I wonder what that would lead to, because it would probably partially lead you to not ever rest, because yeah. you always wanted to, like you said, prove something or, or say, like, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll, show, I'll show you. But then on the other hand, would it teach you to not not judge success on what how other people viewed it would it teach yeah. you to take a more like internal view of what success oh, yeah. actually meant well i think that's absolutely right so if you ask me to describe myself driven would definitely be one of the words so that is definitely a legacy and that's definitely been for decades but i think also you are absolutely right this whole point about the story i told you about the decision i took around career and how other people react to that that was utterly irrelevant to me I'd made my choice, I knew why, but to judge myself by my standards, that was more important to me. And oddly enough, uh, when people say, what do you think has really driven you over the years? An inner self-confidence, an inner compass has been far more important to me than anything anybody else might say, actually. 
So interesting. Did other people kind of have expectations of you when you were growing up, like expectations of what you were going to be, especially if there was Longbridge around and lots of people worked in manufacturing? Were you aware that other people might have a different idea of the? Of well, that your was plan? early days, that manufacturing. But by the time, obviously, I was 16 or so, with different schooling, your horizons had changed a bit by then. Now, I, I think one of the great things about, again, about my parents and others is it was very much you decide what you want to do. I still joke that if I'd decided to be a doctor in Birmingham, they'd have been very, very happy. Not got involved in all of this political nonsense. <laughs> uh, they'd have probably been very happy, but they have been utterly selfless in any advice they gave me when I was a youngster. It was very much about you decide what's right for you. And so you said that you are the eldest of three. Yeah. Are you kind of a, like, I'm the eldest of two. And I, I, yeah. al- I always feel like I know when someone was the eldest in their family because they just act differently. Uh-huh. Is that the role that you took with your brother and sister? I don't quite know what that means. <laughs> I don't think so. I actually think what happened, because we're very, very different people, entirely different. My brother thinks this whole political stuff that I've done is bonkers. Uh, he has moved away, lives in Wiltshire. Um, Not because of the political No, no, no. He moved away well before I became mayor. (laughs) And my sister, she has emigrated to Canada and finds my, the driven word, really quite unusual. So we're very, we are very, very different. But I think the common thing is my parents were exactly the same in terms of supporting our individual decisions but in terms of any idea that as the eldest I'd have influenced no that didn't happen at all do you remember things like I'm always interested to hear about like dinner table conversations or what yeah. was a what was a normal kind of summer holidays like in oh we always went to the family. same place so summer holidays my family mum and dad grandparents great uncles all that had all gone to the same place Tawin on the Welsh coast, Birmingham on the sea. We went there because we were lucky enough to, in my very early years, we went to, I think it was my great uncle's place right on the seafront there. And then my granddad bought a little wooden chalet there. So we went there all the time. So it was a very, again, it was very secure. It was known. And we did wonderful things up in the hills, in the rivers, on the beaches. It was a brilliant way to be brought up it was like the famous five really and I still go back there all the time so it's really stuck there occasionally we went different places I remember a couple of camping holidays abroad as kids but fundamentally our second home was Tawin Abadovi when we when we spoke about doing this podcast, when I asked you if you would mind being involved and that it would be about your childhood, you said something like that you didn't do anything you were told. <laughs> Not sure if you remember. I don't remember saying that, yeah. <laughs> I was so just I wasn't, a, I wasn't a wild kid. I wasn't a wild kid. But this whole thing, but, you know, what I was getting at in that throwaway line was, I suppose what's obvious from the whole story is I feel I've made my decisions. I did don't feel I was, what's the word? shaped by others around me so it was that wider point it wasn't that I was well actually I say I was gonna say I wasn't out all night but when I was 17 18 the whole thing in the youngsters uh, sort of social scene there there were a few uh, party places in the city that we spent far too long in so in that sense no I, that was another very happy aspect of childhood actually that so if the theme that ties this together is that 
you were very much making your own decisions for the people who tend to listen to this podcast like parents teachers educators and like what's really interesting is that the reason they are listening is to pick up ideas and tips and stuff on how they can shape the future of the children that are under their control yeah it's really interesting question this because please i know what this to sound like i was in some sort of bubble not taking all the inputs the inputs i had were incredibly powerful incredibly i talked about the teacher who shaped me i talked about my parents who were incredible could not have been better more supportive parents i've been incredibly lucky and right through to now when things are really wrong i know i can just you know really important but I, so I, I think the point though of this of my story is there were quite possibly surprising things that just became the switches so definitely this birmingham charity i got involved in was a switch it taught me showed me things in this city that i did not know existed because i'd had a relatively safe upbringing it showed me some utter deprivation which i am still acutely conscious of brought me into touch with things i would probably not have otherwise have seen and then of course my then interest as a student in politics and i think perhaps the thing to draw out of this is they can be completely random but when someone gets something they are genuinely interested in my deduction is you've got to support anyone in that so i always say to youngsters because quite often i'm asked to go along to six forms and talk and this might sound oh so glib but the thing i always say is allow people to follow what excites what interests them not what necessarily you think should do because you just don't know what it's going to be something completely random and it's looking out for those the signals and then getting immediately behind them which I would advise anyone trying to shape support youngsters there. And it could be the most unusual things that will suddenly be the switch for whoever we're talking about. Almost allowing someone to just be interested in stuff and then yeah. to carry on playing and carry on seeing where it goes. Exactly. That's my take on it. Because we've got all the sort of normative pressures about it. it should be this, should be this, should be this. But who would have dreamt what it would have been for me? Uh, and then I think the same probably applies for some others. So I guess penultimate question is, did you ever dream where it could go? Because I was I was doing some research around especially political like leaders. And, and something I, fa- I read about Theresa May that I thought was interesting was that when she was younger, she wanted to be the first female prime minister of the UK. And she was annoyed when Margaret Thatcher got <laughs> really? there first. I and I that. thought that was fascinating yeah. because that was she obviously knew or believed that she could do it from a very very early age so is there anything in your journey the stuff that's happened so far that back then you could have almost predicted or almost said yeah that could be me well the answer is a yes and a no to that let me explain what i mean by that the no bit is you know i've ended up being mayor of the west midlands and for 30 years i worked for a company and although i'd been interested in politics i kept saying no no, not going into politics, not going into politics. And, you know, people used to say to me, well, you're really interested in this, Andy. Why don't you stand BOP? And I kept saying, no, it won't work for me. But when this particular role came up, I thought, given what I'd done on the LEP, this could be the right role. And my sort of passion for the place, sort of sense of social responsibility about it. I just thought, yeah, that is right. So you could, from that, say, no, there was nothing planned for, nothing preordained about that at all. It was literally just a flip in 2016. But if I'm honest, right back to when I was 18, I used to joke about one day I would be like Joe Chamberlain. And it was just a complete throwaway line. 
because there just was no structure to make that happen in any way. But occasionally I did throw that line away. So I suppose in an odd way, it has come back full circle. But I certainly didn't work towards it for 30 years. Yes. Absolutely no way. It yeah. just sort of fell it's out like of the nowhere. Seed was, the seed was planted. Yeah, and, then... and nothing happened to that seed. It just lay dormant for all those years. But interesting that other people maybe saw the potential before you did yeah that's probably right yeah yeah which is probably the best the best way of making a political leader when they don't realize and they're kind of busy doing other things and other people are going no no you really should because then it's led by the the supporters rather than led by the leader so last question then would you would you have any words of advice for your former self if we take 10 year old andy again if we sit him down and say okay here's the deal. (laughs) This is what you need to be aware of. This is what you need to be prepared for. What, what would you say to him? I would say two things. Whatever you go on to do, the stuff that's going to make the headline of your CV that someone might read out in 40 years time, remember two other things are even more important. And the first is the choice of your friendships, particularly if you're not going to get married. They're really, really important and that's what sees you through life it gives you your people will be there for you forever and that's really really important and you can't aged 11 set out saying i'm gonna find those people but actually you know what it proves to be one of the most important things and secondarily it would be make sure you have it's a jargon word a hinterland, lots of interest, things that you can just go and get your soul, your soul food because it can't all be about the hard stuff. And so with great friends and things that give you your sort of escapes almost, that's what will see you through. And those things are just as important as the things that are going to be read out in 40 years' time. Andy, thank you so much for for joining me today, for taking the time out of what I know is a very, very busy schedule. It's been an absolute pleasure to interview you. Thank you very much, Jodie. I've enjoyed thinking about it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Clever Tykes Children's Storybooks. If you want to support the podcast and help share our ethos of inspiring, enterprising behaviour, head over to clevertykes.com and order a set of the storybooks to give to a child that you know.